You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. more about me. My name is Reed Squires. I'm, I'm a pastor here, but I'm not the pastor of, of teaching and vision. That's Marshall. Um, I'm the pastor of operations and administration, which means I have more of a, a behind-the-scenes role at Sojourn, um, and I love that, uh, frankly. <laughs> but um, that means, among other things, that I'm, I'm talking and overseeing about volunteers and systems, but, but specifically about finance. So I, I spend a lot of time with our budget um, I spend a lot of time talking about giving and income and expense and money. Um, and usually when, when churches or pastors talk about money, people get uncomfortable. I think we can admit that. Some of us are maybe uncomfortable now. Um, I know I am, but I just get uncomfortable talking in front of large crowds, so it's not as much related to money. But that, that kind of gnaws on us a little bit um, when we talk about it, and uh, I want to know why that is. I mean, really, when we think about what Jesus talked about, Jesus spent about 15% of the time that he was speaking talking about money. Um, So to be faithful Christians and followers of Christ, we have to talk about money. Um, And he talks about it for a lot of reasons, but mainly I think he talks about it so much because money has a propensity to rule our hearts. Um, it's, it's a temptress. It lures us uh, with, with all sorts of temptation, and it was true in Jesus' time, and it's definitely true today in America, um, in, in a Western culture of consumption. So at Sojourn, we plan to talk about money, um, and it's not to make people uncomfortable, right? It's, it's instead we do this because we believe in passages like this, that this is an encouragement from Paul, and that giving is an act of God's grace um, to us, in us, through us, and, and out to others. Um, I want to be gracious with this because I know this is a hard topic, but I, I hope we can discuss it as a family. And um, I know that there's a lot of struggles in the room, maybe not with giving specifically, but, but maybe with trust of the church. Um, and I want to be bold and speak truth here, but also gracious with, with understanding that there are those, uh, that, that myriad of kind of opinions and thoughts and experiences. Um, so I think the best place to start uh, here and in all things is prayer. So bow with me, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these, the men and women here who are volunteering and giving uh, graciously of their time and talent um, and resources here at Sojourn Montrose. Lord, I, I praise you. I lift you up. Thank you for working on the hearts of us um, to an extent that that we can hear things that are difficult kind of to talk about and, and kind of walk into them boldly with each other um, and remind each other uh, of truth from your word this morning. Lord, uh, I pray that you humble me um, and that you uh, bathe the hearts in here with grace for, for this message for me. Lord, we love you. We trust you with this, um, and, and we trust you with all things. In your holiest name, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Cool. So, awesome. Before we get uh, we work kind of through the text, we have a little bit of work to do to understand the context bit of work to do, there I go, to understand the context of this in Corinthians. Um, first, I think there's a tension in our culture um, between wealth and greed, right? And let me give us an example. Um, for 
the purpose of this sermon, let's use Tolkien. Let's use The Hobbit. That's what I always use. Some of you are like, oh, great. Again, Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, if you've read The Hobbit, you kinda, you're familiar with the story. It's about a human-like creature who, who gets called to go on an adventure with a group of guys to, to this place called the Lonely Mountain. And in the Lonely Mountain, there's a dragon that lives there, Smog, and, and he's hoarding a treasure, um, a hoard of treasure, of gold, of jewels, uh, of stones. Um, and, and Smog has captured the kingdom and now is living in the mountain for generations. And we, we read that um, all Smog does, this dragon, this huge dragon, all he does is sleep in it. He, he bathes in the gold. He, he rests in it. Jewels get encrusted into his, into his scales. Um, he keeps meticulous record of it. He counts it and recounts it and recounts it and recounts it. So much so that when one cup goes missing, he becomes enraged. Um, and so this smog, this dragon, is the hero, right? No, he's the villain. Um, nobody reads The Hobbit and thinks, oh, that's the good guy. Uh, that dragon in the lonely mountain, the place of death and destruction. Um, we all hear stories like this. This is a, a classic trope, right? Like the, the old greedy monster beast person. We all hear this and we despise that greed. Nobody, nobody um, hoists that character up on their shoulders and says, good job, you got all the wealth. Um, we despise that greed, yet simultaneously in our culture, we're despising stories of greed like that, but aspiring towards greater and greater and greater wealth, right? I, I know this is true for me. Um, so so there's, a, there's a dichotomy, there's a tension that exists between negative feelings towards greed, but in our personal lives, very positive feelings and motions toward wealth. So this morning, as we look at a passage where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in a wealthy region called Corinth, I think we have a lot to learn about this tension. And so to set this up, Corinth is very much like Houston. It's a city of wealth. Um, it's a region of wealth. And it, it speaks into this tension because when we talk about generosity, we experience the tension between greed and wealth in us. Um, Corinth isn't the exception here. It's incredibly wealthy, and Paul has not seen them excel in generosity, and he wants them to for a lot of reasons. So Paul writes two letters to the church in Corinth, it's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing them because this, this church in Corinth is plagued with um, all sorts of problems. They, they're idolatrous. Um, they, they don't have order in worship. It's chaotic. Uh, people are getting drunk, people are greedy, people are divided. Um, and, and Paul writes to them, addressing those issues separately but head on, and then countering them with the gospel, right? So he's saying like, you guys do this, and here's the truth of the gospel, and this is why you should change the way you're behaving because of the gospel, right? It's what we talked about in holiness, where we, the holiness series where we talk about obedience follows the gospel, what Jesus has done. So in 2 Corinthians, we, there's a great uh, part near the beginning where Paul kind of laments that he wrote the first letter. He's, he's saying, man, if it grieved you, I, I hope it didn't. I'm worried that I really kind of ruffled your feathers. But then Paul counters himself and says, but, but if me doing that <laughs> caused you to repent, then praise be to God that I'm not grieved because 
you've turned and you're walking in holiness. So this is kind of the context we find ourselves. These letters seem harsh, um, but they're bathed in loving discipline, care, and concern for the people here. So when we arrive in chapter 8, Paul is telling the story of the church in Macedonia to the church in Corinth. Um, he, he's talking about the brothers and sisters in another young church plant in Macedonia. Um, and he's writing this letter to Corinth after a recent trip, and he's been amazed at what the young church in Macedonia is doing. Um, and for context, Corinth is that wealthy place, right, where Macedonia is poor, persecuted, uh, impoverished, sick. Um, it's the opposite of Corinth. And so Paul says this uh, in the first five verses. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this is meant as an encouragement, right? Um, look, Paul say, look at the church in Macedonia. Even in extreme poverty and affliction and all these things, their joy overflowed into wealth, um, they are supporting saints all over the region. They're supporting church planters all over the region, a region where poverty and famine have stricken people. Uh, the equation, if you're taking notes, you can write this. The equation looks like this. Poverty plus joy has equaled wealth. That's like negative 10 plus 50 is equaling 100, 1,000, 500, something like that. And, and so that... That the equation doesn't add up unless the joy is so great that wealth comes when you add it to poverty, right? Joy has to be the X factor for the church in Macedonia. Um, this joy leads them to give, like if Paul had a number in his mind, they give to that number and then beyond it um, as God has allowed them. That means he didn't even ask them for, for, the, for what he got. They gave over the amount planning without being prompted. More than that, read in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. Imagine that scene, poverty-stricken, persecuted, sick, homeless, uh, on the ground begging for the chance to give to the mission of God in the region. What elicits that joy? What elicits that response? Like what allows for that? Uh, and in verse five it says this, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So first they gave them to the Lord, right? Not as much chronologically like they first they did this and they did this, but it's like a ranking of importance. They gave themselves to the Lord, Giving yourself to the Lord produces this result, and it's not surprising. In all things, not just giving, in all things, these Christians in Macedonia are giving themselves first to the Lord, and then they're changing. 
So why does Paul tell the Corinthians this, right? Why does this matter to the church in Corinth? Um, and I think we're tempted to believe that this is a fundraising gimmick, right? But it really isn't. Paul doesn't mean, man, this, this other church is giving really well over here, and uh, it'd be nice if, if there was a rich church in the region that would give. Do y'all know one? And just kind of like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if we'll get any money. Uh, he isn't trying to start a giving competition, right? He doesn't have the two thermometers. It's like Macedonia is over here, like coming up, and Corinth is down here. Like, let's, let's go, Corinth. Uh, he wants their hearts to experience the gospel. He wants their hearts to change. He knows that they need the gospel and that a radical example of how they should be living is Christ. Look at with me in verse 7. It says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. It's not sarcastic. It's, it's literal. He's saying, Christians in Corinth, you're great. You're, you're smart. You've got knowledge. You've got faith. Make sure you don't miss this. Don't miss excelling in the act of giving. Um, and, and he calls it an act of grace, and we'll, we'll dig into that in just a second. Uh, and it's really key to unlocking some of this. Beyond that, though, he takes the pressure off in verse 8, right? This isn't a command. It's fruit. It's proof that your hearts have changed. Um, it's proof that you have joy and freedom in Christ, joy beyond wealth. So remember the formula earlier, uh, poverty plus joy equals wealth. In Corinth, it's like wealth plus okayness equals nothing, right? It's like they aren't charitable. So let's zoom out of Corinth and zoom into Houston and think, what's the Houston formula? Not necessarily the Sojourn formula, but what's the Houston formula? It, it certainly doesn't start out with poverty, right? There, there is poverty in Houston, don't get me wrong, but Houston's one of the wealthiest cities in the world right now. You can drive a lot of places very close by here and, and prove that. So we have wealth, but do we have joy? I think if you're going to pair, compare Houston to Corinth, um, then Macedonia could be compared to like Detroit, right? So if Houston is wealthy, Detroit is not wealthy. And Detroit, in fact, households make, um, 50% of households make less than 25000 a year in Detroit. Not, not people. 50% of households make less than 25000 a year in Detroit. And so this would be like Detroit blowing Houston out of the water and giving. And if you're curious, both cities give about 3%. So that, as an aside, like, that's a different topic. But Paul is calling them and us by extension to give to see that we excel in this act of grace. So back to why is this an act of grace, right? What makes this an act of grace? But if you think about what giving is, uh, breaking down giving, it's rooted in grace. It's all grace. It's God's grace that we have anything at all, right? That, that's believer, non-believer alike. The fact that we have anything is God's grace. 
God begins the act of grace by sharing his resources with us for his kingdom purpose. Back to verse five, they gave themselves to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So it's, it's God's will that allows them to give. So every part of giving is, a, is grace. It's God's grace to us that our hearts are changed in such a way that we find giving compelling. That's not our nature. God begins the act of grace. We get to complete it by stewarding our resources. We are called to extend grace to others, financial grace. That means we give generously, therefore showing grace to others through our generosity. And I think uh, hopefully we can admit we fail at this, right? I I fail at this. We fail to give like the people in Macedonia. I am rarely begging to give for the cause of the saints. But that's our calling, to excel in this act of grace. So why do we fail at this calling? Um, why do we not give well? I think there are five primary reasons that we don't give. Um, and if you're a Christian in the room and you aren't affected by one of these, I, I haven't met you. Um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that a little bit of all of these are playing a part uh, in, our, in our context. So if you take notes, it's these five. The first, which informs the other four, the first is we don't understand the biblical expectations. Sometimes it's just that simple, right? Second, we are consumer-minded. Third, we maybe, this also simple, maybe we don't know how to budget for generosity. Fourth, uh, and this is a big one, we don't trust the church. And fifth, and maybe mainly, we don't have joy like the Macedonians have. So we're going to dive into all of these for a little bit. Um, But the first, like I said, really... uh, really informs the rest. The biblical expectations are where we want to go first. So uh, let's talk about it. Some of us don't know what God wants for us, not only in giving, but but everywhere, right? Some of us don't know what God wants for us. Maybe we're new believers, um, or maybe we simply haven't engaged with specific texts. Uh, but, and we readily admit, right, this could be a discipleship issue too. Like this, this is part of our, our process in, in training up new believers, but we want to be growing and teaching and learning together here at Sojourn with mature and new Christians, right? We want to understand the biblical expectations of all things as a family. But I think that's a little daunting for me and for us when we think about the extensive list of biblical expectations. But I'd argue that we're thinking about it wrong. Truly, the biblical expectations for all things is not a list, it's not rules, it's not law, but a person, right? The biblical expectations for us is not a list, it's a person in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the expectation, the person and work of Jesus to become like Christ, which means we become perfect in obedience to the Father, perfect in love, perfect in sacrifice, poured out for all. When we are rich for the sake of others, we become poor like Christ did for us. This is the gospel, y'all. This is, 
God rich in all things, in heaven, glory, everything, becoming human, stepping into our world in flesh. All knowledge, all power, all wisdom, all presence contained in a human. Talk about becoming poor. This isn't all he does, though. He lives perfectly on our behalf, giving of all of himself for our sake. And by his death on our behalf, we become perfected. That should be incredible motivation to give more of ourselves. To quote Pastor Joby Martin, he says, Jesus doesn't tithe his blood. We just sang it. Jesus paid a little bit, some. Jesus paid it all. God paid it all on our behalf, not just some of it. Believing in this, in this love, in an overwhelming love is a reason to obey. It's the natural progression, right? Let me share another story about another dragon. Um, And then we were kind of joking because this is becoming like the dragon sermon, but... Um, bear with me. In, in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of Don Treader, right? it's a Chronicle of Narnia book, um, there's a character, a boy named Eustace, who finds treasure, right? And upon finding and coveting and hoarding this treasure, Eustace becomes a dragon. Again, and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are friends, so they probably borrowed a little bit from each other. But Eustace becomes a beast, literally. And then... There's a God figure in the Chronicles of Narnia too. His name's Aslan. He's a mighty lion, a good king that that brings fear and love. Um, It's an overwhelming God God metaphor. And Aslan, the lion and king of Narnia, leads the dragon, Eustace, to the spring on top of a mountain and says, this spring will clean you. And Eustace gets in and is rubbing himself with the water and trying to cleanse himself, and it, it doesn't work. And Aslan, the God, our God, gets in the pool with him and washes him, and the scales melt off. That's God's role in in changing our hearts, right? He does the removing. He does the cleaning. He does the bathing. And the Bible is clear on this. We say it every week, too. Give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. This passage is clear. Excel in this act of grace. But this isn't a command. It's what happened when our hearts shed scales. We get to look to Christ as our example and redeemer. And when we understand and believe the extent of grace that is working in us right now and has worked in us on the cross, then we begin to understand that we can pour out and we do it with joy in our poverty. So giving is, the biblical expectation um, and the biblical precedent for giving is that it's an act of grace. It's grace to us from God, overflowing in us in joy and out to others in the form of giving. Therefore, in that scenario, money, finance, uh, the number in our bank account becomes a number not that represents banknotes or gold, but grace. If we make this shift, um, what would our lives look like, right? If that number was grace, 
And it is. I mean, <laughs> how would this color our spending? How would this change how we save? How would we give and steward our money when we think about it as God's given currency of grace to us? I, I encourage us to talk about this uh, in the neighborhood parish. I could go on, but um, let's talk about uh, the other four reasons uh, we think um, that we, we don't excel in this act of giving or act of grace. The second is um, we're consumer-minded, right? So this is America. Uh, it's impossible not to have products kind of slammed in our face all the time. Um, and we look up to the, the Bill Gates, the, the Warren Buffett, the, um, the Steve Jobs. We look up to these guys. The wealthy beyond wealthy. And yeah, like they do give sometimes, but you're talking about like the, the most minuscule amount in the context of their wealth hoard. It's like Smog the Dragon throwing a, a penny at you. Saying, yeah, I give. We're consumer-minded. But you hear time and time again, uh, these guys like Jerry Seinfeld has said it, and um, other guys have said this, like, I wish everybody could feel wealthy or experience wealth so they'd know that that's not it. And I'm reminded of another story in the Bible when I think about consumerism. It's, it's Luke 16, and it's an account, an, an account titled Lazarus and the Rich Man. And the point is this. Lazarus goes to glory and sits with Abraham and the prophets and experiences the full presence of God in perfection. And the rich man echoes into eternity as a rich man. That's, that's the only thing we know about him. It's Lazarus and the rich man. We never hear his name, how he got rich, what he invented, doesn't matter. He's the rich man. And he never experienced what Lazarus, the poor man, experienced. We become consumer-minded when we give ourselves to other things. When we give ourselves to numbers in the bank account or, or anything, when in fact we should first, just like Paul says, first gave themselves to Christ. When we first give ourselves to Christ, this consumer mentality melts away from us. We need to be like the Macedonians who've done this. If our mind is preoccupied, not just finance, if our mind is preoccupied with anything other than Jesus first, boyfriend, girlfriend, house, car, promotion, comfort, control, power, when our mind is preoccupied with those things, we don't have room for Jesus. Andrew Murray puts it this way. He says, if I am something, then God is not everything. Right? If, I'm, if I'm anything, if I'm something, then God, there's no room for God to be everything in that scenario. He wants all of us. Give yourself first to the Lord and then watch as the scales fall away from our hearts. And you'll experience true, lasting wealth in it. Um, I could spend a lot of time there, but let's move on for the sake of time. Uh, third, we don't know how to budget for generosity. And sometimes it's this simple, y'all. Sometimes we don't know how to, how to budget, and sometimes we're too prideful to ask for help when we budget. But this is simple. We say this all the time. If you need help, budgeting, reach out to one of our guys on the financial stewardship team or talk to the people in your parish. 
we say that, but rarely does it, does it actually happen. And uh, I pride myself on being an admin guy, right? Like I love Excel. I love budgets. And I know everybody's not like that, but me and my wife are. Um, and I had a parish leader in my budget Friday. What am I spending on? I need help with this too. And I, I pride myself in my ability to do this. And the truth is, and, and hear this with grace, if you're a Christian in the room and you don't steward, uh, and, and you're not giving generously, then you're not stewarding well. If you draw an income, that is. If you're a Christian in the room that's drawing an income and you're not giving, you're not stewarding well, ask for help in your community. Let us help you budget. Not necessarily here. Maybe ask a family member or if you're not a member of this church at the church that you land at, but get help with budgeting. It has a lot to say about where our hearts are. So fourth, maybe we don't trust the church, right? And this is another sermon in all of itself. But, but some of us have decent reasons not to trust the church. Um, there's scandal after scandal after scandal when it comes to organizations. Um, some of us have been burned by leaders in the church, right? We've been like, hurt by them personally. But when the gospel calls us to true community, nothing is said about perfect community. The gospel calls us to community with imperfect people that are striving towards perfection in Christ. But we are imperfect people. And, and we have to remember that when we give to the church, we're really giving unto the Lord, right? We're not giving for the org, we're giving to the Lord, no organization will steward kingdom resources perfectly. You and I will never steward kingdom resources perfectly, right? And the people Paul is talking about in Macedonia, that Macedonians give all this money. Paul doesn't mention the recipients, but they didn't steward it perfectly. We give unto the Lord and trust that act of grace. Two of the best ways to walk out trust issues with the church. Uh, the first is to, to get in a neighborhood parish or a community with open, honest, broken people. You'll find out that, that this is hard for everyone. Not just giving, but life. But you'll also find that people will point you to the gospel um, and your scales will fall away. And the second way really to start working against trust issues with the church is to start giving and start praying. Pray for the Lord to wash you um, and cleanse you and teach you in these ways. And, and just as an aside too, um, at Sojourn, we have a financial stewardship team that budgets all of our money. Um, we regularly update our members on income and expense. We're happy to share our numbers with you. Um, and we have a ton of systems in place to ensure that we're stewarding kingdom resources well. We have lots of checks and balances, and we're proud of that. Um, and I'd be happy to walk you through that um, if you'd like to learn more, because we know how easy it is for organizations to fail. But the church, we're told, the global church, the, the primary missional um, organization of God will never fail because of imperfect people. Amen. Uh, and finally, we don't, the, the final reason is we don't have the joy that the Macedonians have. Um, think back to the equation, right? Joy plus poverty equals wealth. 
in Houston, when we don't overflow, overflow with generosity, it's not because we don't have wealth, right? It's because we don't have joy. The reason we don't have joy, believers, is because we don't believe what Jesus has done on our behalf. We either think his death wasn't sufficient or our sin is too great. But listen to this in John 15. It says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As my father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in the truth of what Jesus has done and is doing, abiding in his love is the key to unlocking this. If you keep his commandments, just like Paul's saying, it's proof of genuine love, right? If you keep his commandments, you will abide in his love. He really wants us to experience full, everlasting joy, not material, fading wealth. And I, like Paul, don't say this as a fundraising gimmick. It's a grace issue, and it's a heart issue. Truth is that Montrose is expensive. Um, It's an expensive place for a church to root. It's an expensive place for us to root. Y'all know that. Um, But we're continuing to grow, and God is continuing to meet our need here. We want to root in this expensive neighborhood so we can show them and this expensive city for the long haul so we can show them that that true wealth exists beyond the things we can build. And another practical way you can can play this out is um, at Sojourn, we're we're about planting more churches in Houston. So that means um, many of you know Cole Kirby, who's going to plant a church through Sojourn in the next couple of years. He's starting his journey this summer, and odds are he's going to ask you to sit down with him so he can tell you about his vision for planting a church, and he's going to ask you to pour out grace on him financially. And my prayer for you as it is for me is that I will hear about what God is doing and overflow with joy and that maybe I would beg Cole to give to him and he wouldn't have to come ask me a bunch. But I would be begging Cole to give and Paul to give and, and Carlos to give. Those are our three church planning residents in Houston right now. I'd be begging to support their ministry. I have faith that God will provide for sojourn, I have, just like I have faith that God will provide for me. His work isn't finished at sojourn, and it's not finished in me. But I want us all to know true wealth, eternal wealth, as being generous as Christ is generous. So uh, I say this to conclude, to the believer in the room, uh, encounter and realize the sin that is blocking you from experiencing true wealth and true joy. Uh, If you're a member or a guest here and you're in a neighborhood parish, walk this out with your parish family. Ask for help budgeting. Ask for help with your trust issues. Talk to your brothers and sisters about your idols of consumerism. Walk toward joy with brothers and sisters, pointing pointing them to the true source of joy. 
discuss the Bible and remind each other of the gospel that's affected us so much. And then watch as scales fall off from our hearts and we link arms and start to pour out in a myriad of ways. God is doing incredible, incredible things here. Um, We have, if you look around, you know, we have over 120, 130 now people meeting here week after week in one of the hardest neighborhoods in the city, and God is still doing work. There's plenty of room to pour out in in this act of grace. Let's be encouraged to grow in this together. To the non-believer in the room this morning, I say this, please don't hear us ask for your money. I I truly want you to go first to Christ. Um, Thinking back to the smog illustration, the dragon, the first dragon, um, our prayer non-believer is that you stop swimming in, um, that you stop swimming in pride um, and wealth and aspiration and that you start swimming in grace and that you're clothed in the righteousness and beauty of Christ. As Christians, we live our lives in grace and our prayer is that you might find that compelling. Our prayer is that you find Jesus compelling. <sighs> Let's excel in this act of grace. That's the, that's the drum I'm beating. We don't talk about percentages We're not talking about expectations or rules. We're talking about a person. We're talking about Jesus and what he does to the scales of our heart. We have to grow in this together, and we will. Talk about this with your neighborhood parish and your family. Let's link arms and grow together, knowing that the ultimate act of grace on our behalf was accomplished on the cross. Pray with me. Father God, we can't fathom how you gave up all things and stepped into our world and our flesh and our death. Something that you never intended, something that you never should have experienced, Jesus, that you walk in it gladly for us. Lord, we know that that out of that act comes all things and that, Father, we, we pray that you work on our hearts, that, we, that in community we begin to point each other to the gospel and that our hearts are changed and molded and become generous and pouring out uh, not just finance but, but love and care and time and commitment and space and, and everything. Jesus, thank you that that you didn't just tithe or pay some of it. Thank you that there's nothing else we have to do, but there's so much that we get to do. Father, as as we prepare to come to the table, um, let us remember what you've done on our behalf, that, that the cup we drink and the bread we eat Um, symbolizes you paying it all. Let that wash over us. Let it mold us. Um, We trust you above all things of this earth. Lord, we love you. We praise you. 
I lift this all up to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.